Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today I have the privilege of having a conversation with Dr. Mark Genelette. Mark Genelette is a dear friend and colleague here at Beeson, has been for a number of years now, and he's just returning from a sabbatical leave in St. Andrews, Scotland. Welcome back, Mark. Well, thanks. It's very good to be back. Thank you. Now, to, to get going, just tell us about St. Andrews a little bit, because that's actually where you did doctoral study, right? Right. right so right. this was your second tour of duty over there. Right. It was a bit of a return to home, in a way. Um, we, My wife and I were there from 2002 to 2005. Um, and we, the sabbatical came up, and we were thinking about where to go, and ended up landing back in St. Andrews. And it was a wonderful experience. We we have you know we went to St. Andrews initially with no children, and this time we went with four. Ah. <laughs> um, so we put all of them in school. Um, it was tight living quarters, so we had a sort of small uh, flat that we were living in. All four of our children were in one bedroom, so that oh had its <laughs> that had its fun moments. And all of them were in school right around the, the neighborhood. A very simple life, good life. Um, and able to get some research done on a, on a project that I'm doing um, for Baker Academic on a theological introduction to the Old Testament. So I was able to get some headway on yeah, that. Yeah. And St. Andrews, as, as you know, you've been there. It's an idealic place for it's study. And you're set on yeah. the North Sea. You're kind right. of, there's no train station there. You're really kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a very good experience. I think we're having a bit of reverse culture shock because you know, <laughs> everything is so slow and sort of methodical there. And now yeah. we're living, you know, the American fifth the gear pace. Yeah, so. Well, you know, I think St. Andrews is the third oldest university in Great Britain after Oxford and Cambridge. Is that right? I think that's right. And I've, I've always thought of sort of Cambridge, Oxford, and St. Andrews forming a kind of Triad, maybe that's yeah. self-serving in a way, but it's it's Scotland's oldest university. Yeah, and what about uh, doing theology there? There's a theological college, St. Mary's. St. Mary's is there, and St. Mary's as a theological college still has a self-identified theological identity, which is becoming increasingly rare in, mm. in departments that tend to focus more on religious studies. So there, there's a really vibrant theological community there with some big names like Tom Wright teaches in New yeah. Testament. Yeah. And you have Stephen Holmes in theology. Christopher Schwobel is the new um, theology professor that's yeah. come in to fill the vacant uh, post that John Webster left yeah, with his yeah, untimely yeah. Uh, passing. Um, and it's a vibrant place. I mean, yeah. it, there's a lot of fascinating discussions going on. When I was there, I, I had the opportunity to sit around and hear a full day's discussion on T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets and wow. um, various theologians coming in from various places. So there's a there's a kind of theological energy that's still going on uh, at St. Andrews. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad you had a great year. I'm re- very glad you're back with us. Thank you. Glad and th- this has not been an idle year for you in terms of publishing. You mentioned one project, but right. you've actually published a commentary on Micah. Since right. you've been gone, and the right. book we're going to talk about on the podcast today, sure. Reading Scripture Canonically. Yes. So some of these w- books were in the works before you went to St. Andrews right. on this visit, but right. now they're in hand. They're here. So we want to talk especially about this book, Reading Scripture Canonically. Okay. Now that's kind of a long, maybe a little bit forbidding title to somebody who's not an expert <laughs> in the field. Right. But actually, the book is not that long. It's 120 pages or so. Right. Very clear, uh, readable prose, as you always write. Why did you write this book? Well, 
I wrote this book for students, and actually the book is dedicated to the students here at Beeson. Um, I, these are, you know, we teach various courses here on exegesis, and I wanted something that was in a manageable size that you could hand to students, and they can they could engage, you know, what some basic theological instincts that they need for engaging Old Testament exegesis. So there is, admittedly, an assumption of a certain sort of base knowledge that the book is working with, whether it's some exegesis classes or some courses in seminary or undergrad religion courses. There's, there is some assumed knowledge in this book, but it's, it's meant to be sort of small and, and, and manageable. John Webster, I've already mentioned him, but he published a book years ago on Holy Scripture that yeah. came out with, yeah. I believe, Cambridge Press. And it's a small, tight yeah. book. I, I love, I've assigned that book. I love that book. And I, th- I think that kind of size, I was, I was aiming for that with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's accessible. So it's accessible. Um, you know, I don't know if the prose is all that clear. I wish I, I wish I wish I did better at that. But it's it is meant to be accessible for students. Now I want to focus in on this word canonically. Sure. Um, most people think of canons as guns that fired in the Civil War. That's right. What is a canon? And why should one read scripture canonically? Well, a new canon as a term in its basic sense means rule or norm. So it has something to do with authority, that which structures our thoughts and our prayers in our lives before God. But as with anything within the theological disciplines or within biblical studies, terms and their definitions are contested. And this is one that's hot, actually, among biblical scholars. And I would say, and I'm going to paint broadly here, but I would say that probably most biblical scholars today are working with an understanding of canon primarily as an external list, something that is an external property of the biblical text where later ecclesial communities came along and decided which books were in or which books were out. That, I think, is kind of the driving definition of of canon in in a lot of the discourse. And I'm leaning against that definition in this book and arguing – in line with some others, who I'm sure we'll talk about before our time is over, but arguing that really canon should more properly be understood as an internal property of the biblical texts. Um, so I, I'm actually opting for a definition here that's underdetermined. Um, mm. it's, it allows for a whole range of activities that's involved that are involved in the compositional history of biblical books from their inception to their final form, and that this canonical process itself is something that's internal to biblical text and not just an external category. So where in the discipline today, I think the terms canon and scripture tend to be understood as as distinct terms, this book is seeing those terms as beginning to sort of blur into one another. And for those who are listening who have sort of theological sensibilities and they sniff sort of Protestant instincts, it is. I mean, this this is an understanding that that canon is primarily something that's recognized within the biblical text and not not necessarily determined. So it's worth I want to ask you two questions about that, because when I think of canon and how it's commonly used used today, there, there are two situations I want to mention. One is, it's a distinction between Protestants and Catholics. We have, it is said, different canons. Right. That means we, we recognize different right. uh, bodies of literature as Holy Scripture. Right. Catholics have more books than Protestants. That's right. that is, What do you think about that? And then the second question, you right. can group these together or deal with them differently if you like, is the question of whether the canon is open or closed. Right. Because an open canon, I suppose, means... Maybe new new revelations can be given or new books discovered that would be sure. regarded as the the very words sure. of God, the Holy Scriptures. Sure. So Protestant, Catholic, open, closed. <laughs> These are only some of the most complicated questions of Christian thought today. I mean, that, that, that's a great question. And actually, chapter four of this book leans into that, the, the, the chapter on textual criticism, which may be the most foreboding chapter of, of the book. And this is a live question, you know, the question about how this, the Septuagint, which is a sort of broader 
canonical, more books are involved canonically within the, the Septuagint and how that's been received. And this goes back to early church debates between people like Augustine and Jerome mm-hmm. um, on the priority of the Hebrew text in relationship to the Septuagint. These are, these are, these are problems that have been with the church for, for a very long time. I would say that the term open canon is a helpful term only insofar as it involves a larger ecumenical conversation that's continuing to go on. We do know that that Rome and the Protestant church are divided on their understanding of the scope of the canon. And I think that is a conversation that's probably still in order. And this is one of the reasons, going back to the first question, Dr. George, that I think it's important to recognize canon as an internal property rather than an external property. I mean, even in the first century, there were debates that were going on regarding which books of the Old Testament canon were deemed in or out, like Esther or some of these books on the edges. And I think this this book here is trying to make an argument that canonical authority isn't necessarily determined by the fixity of the canon itself. That there's a recognition that there might be some some blurred edges on this on this discussion, and um, and there can be continued conversations. Here's the challenge, though, and you realize this with all the work that you've done in your own ecumenical endeavors. What are the mechanisms that would be involved, let's say, if they discover a third Corinthian letter from Paul that would allow a larger ecclesial conversation that goes across denominational boundaries to be able to make that kind of move? I'm, I'm not sanguine about that right now, but I do think it's an interesting thought project theologically. There are two names in this book that occur a number of times, two people who've had a great influence on you in your own scholarship and thinking as a theologian. Uh, one is Brevard Childs, the other is Christopher Seitz. I, I've met Christopher Seitz. I was not privileged to meet uh, Professor Childs. He's no longer with us in this world. Say a little bit about who these people are and why they're important to you. Well, Christopher Seitz was my doctor father at St. Andrews. So, you know, I, I remember walking into his office as a 26 year old, you know, freshly minted MDiv student and, and being very nervous to meet him. I'd read a lot of his works. And, and at that point in time, and even now, he, you know, for me, he loomed a little bit larger than life. He had this kind of unusual, capacious mind that could, you know, knew his own discipline very well, but also knew the history of Christian theology and the Western intellectual tradition. And I, I just seeing that at work was its own kind of teaching project for me. I think I caught as much from watching my professor Seitz as I, as I was taught. Um, and they both, you know, Seitz studied with Childs at, uh, at Yale University during the day when I guess whatever this, you know, Yale school was, was actually in play. Figures like George Limbeck, Hans Frey, Brevard Childs, thinking through um, what Christian theology looks like on the far side of modernity. I mean, this is the continued challenge. And so that, that's in many ways the, the influence that both Childs and Seitz have had on me is, um, is the ways in which, you know, Chris's own project on canonical interpretation continues to do its work. You know, um, I, I, I don't know what denomination Brevard Childs was. Christopher Seitz is an Anglican. He is, that's right. And you are too. You, you've you moved yes. in your denominational home over right. the years of your life. So now you're not just an Anglican. You're uh, actually a theologian at the Cathedral Church of the Advent, which is a leading Anglican Episcopal church in the United States, maybe in North America, one of the largest here in Birmingham. We're so blessed to have a wonderful, supportive, mutually enriching relationship with that great congregation. You have a vital role of leadership there. So uh, talk a little bit about uh, that and how that intersects with your work as a biblical theologian. Well, that, there's, a, there's an anecdote with this that I think really says something about the ways in which our situatedness in the life of the church shapes and influences our reading of Scripture. Now, I remember being in a doctoral seminar years ago. And we were wrestling with something in Isaiah and thinking through Isaiah 53, which is, of course, a classic Good Friday text. 
And the referent of the servant in Isaiah 53 is something that's, again, contested. I mean, what is the servant referring to in the book of, of Isaiah? And I remember being in that seminar and hearing Professor Seitz say, I assume that the referent of the servant in Isaiah 53 is our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I thought about that, and of course, there's a kind of very textured way of understanding this. But as I, as he said, as I thought about that, I realized I grew up in an Anglican context. I went to you know, Episcopal school as a boy. Every Good Friday of my life, I'm in church on Friday hearing Isaiah 53 read in conjunction with the death of our, our Lord and Savior. And he, he's like the, the influence that that has on you from an exegetical standpoint is, is something that can't be transcended. We can't escape that. So I think the ways in which the church and the church's Catholicity influences our reading of Scripture is, is again, not something that's external to biblical reading, but is actually internal to what we're trying to engage when we, when we come to terms with the subject matter of the Bible. And that, to me, I mean, I, I can still remember that. That was sky-opening for me to realize, okay, when I'm reading the Bible, I can never read the verbal givenness of the biblical text in abstraction from the subject matter of what the Bible is. And what is that? God's revelation of himself in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Um, and that that was when wheels began to turn for me years ago as a postgraduate student about the necessary interrelationship of Christian theology, ecclesial situatedness, and, and the reading of Holy Scripture. So talk, talk a little bit about uh, the Cathedral Church of the Advent okay. and what you do there, because I think it's very interesting. It's, it's a way in which you bring together your academic vocation with an ecclesial uh, ministry. Right. Well, I haven't done anything there in a while. Yeah. I well, you've been away. Yeah. <laughs> I've been away. I think they're looking forward to your coming uh, I don't, We'll see. We'll see. I don't know. Um, that's, a, I, that's a great question. And funny, when I came to Beeson 15 years ago, I remember having a conversation with the then associate dean, Paul House. And I, I said, Paul, you know, I feel like I need to be involved in local church activity. I don't want to just be a sort of pure academic only in the divinity school. How? You know, and I remember Paul giving me some advice, and, and I and I began to make that a matter of prayer. I mean, early in my academic career here, I prayed that God would open some sort of venue, and I, but I didn't want to put flyers. To, you know, I wasn't going to go self-market, and so I just began to pray about that quietly. And in 2012, Frank Limehouse, um, who, by the way, I dedicate the Micah commentary to Frank. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, yeah. I don't even think Frank knows that yet. And Frank, by the way, is the former the former dean, dean that's of right, the Cathedral of the Church of the Advent. So I dedicated uh, the, the, the micro-commentary to Frank. Frank called me while I was on sabbatical in Germany the last time and said, would you consider coming on in a part-time role, uh, canon theologian, which is a sort of fancy term. I, I don't even have a, my own parking space, so it's, it's not that. <laughs> but I get to preach and teach within the church, and it has been a huge blessing. I, I think that is it's integral to what I do here at the Divinity School, and what I do at the Divinity School shapes how I go about my work within the, the local church. And I think the two are so important in the way in which they, they influence and intertwine. And it's shaped the way that I teach. And it's shaped the way that I preach. So the the sort of back and forth there, I you know, to not have one or the other would feel like you'd lose a limb, yeah. I think. Well, it's a wonderful model because there is, a I think, a temptation, certainly a tendency in a lot of academic theology to be somewhat distanced, if not divorced from, actual living faith communities. Right. And here's a way to show that you can actually do both, and, and both would be better because of that connection. Right. I wish I was the kind of academic who could you know, sit in his office all day and just sort of write and read. I, I, I'm just not wired that way. So I think you know, being in a local church context has been, been a blessing. Back to canonical theology yes, yes, a little yes. bit. Is the Trinity in the Old Testament? <laughs> Um, 
is the Trinity in the Old Testament? The answer to that is unreservedly yes. I mean, this is this is and we, a lot to unpack here. And so let's sort of back out on this. Is the Trinity in the Old Testament? The question is, I think, how is the Trinity present in the Old Testament? We should say up front that the word Trinity is in neither the Old or That's the right. New Testament. That's right. So on a sort of basic lexical level, the answer is no. You're not going to find it in a Strong's Concordance. The question is, how do we inter- engage the biblical text itself in its given literary form? And this is a question that I think is, has exercised um, evangelical scholars and really and critical scholars as well for the past 200 years in a move that I think I might identify as overly historicist. In other words, the approach to reading biblical texts has reduced or tended to reduce the literal sense of Scripture to its historical particularity in a moment in time. And what that I think has done is it's limited the theological reach of biblical texts to what an author might have known at the time. And I try to make a distinction in this book, and we'll see if it works or not, but I try to make a distinction between this book, between what an author or an editor of a biblical book might have known um, versus what the text or what, how the text actually participates in divine realities. Mm. Um, and that's an important distinction that I think within modern biblical studies often gets collapsed. I'm not trying to drive a wedge between the historical particularity of the text and its theological subject matter, but I'm also wanting to say that texts participate in something more than what the author might have even known because, and this goes back to someone like Aquinas, right in the, in the first part of the Summa, or Aquinas raises the question, how do we engage the biblical text? And the answer is by engaging its authorial intentionality. And on a modern ear, you'd say, well, that, that's kind of right. But then Aquinas quickly goes on to clarify, well, who is the governing author of Scripture? It's God. And if that's the case, if that divine authorship of Scripture is the lens by which we view all other facets of the creaturely character of the Bible – well, then that's going to change, I think, our interpretive approach. It's very Aristotelian, right? We, we engage the object of our study, and the object of our study, what it is, is going to shape the approaches that we bring to reading it. And if I'm coming to the Old Testament as Christian scripture that's participating in God's own very life, that's going to shape my hermeneutical approach to it. So a the, the lot to unpack there, but I think when we say, is the Trinity in the Old Testament? I don't know what was in Isaiah's mind. By the way, and I, I should say this as well, I won't be surprised if we get to heaven and Isaiah says, what were you talking about, Genelette? I was a Trinitarian from the get-go. I mean, I, I mean, may, maybe so. And there are medieval theological arguments that sort of yeah. make that kind of claim. So I, I'm fine with that. But I'm trying here to keep something a little bit more distinct and say that might be the case. It might not be the case. But what the text participates in within God's own divine life isn't determined or overly um, limited by by the epistemic reach of the of the author. I'm going to throw out a, a Latin term. This, no. this is a theological podcast, yeah, after all. I'll, get, I'll, get, my, I'll get my phone out to look it up. You know it well. Census plenior. What does it mean, and how is it related to what you just said? Well, census plenior reading is, is a term that understands the biblical text as participating more fully in something beyond its own literal sense. Um, I'm okay with the term. I, I, my, my concern with the term is that I think it does tend to drive a wedge between the text's literal sense and its participation in God's own triune life. Now, in other words, we do our historical excavation, and once we've done that, then you can make a kind of homiletical add-on to, to move it into something in larger Christian theological conversation. Um, and I, I'm okay with that. I, I would prefer that than sort of reducing it and leaving it in the Old Testament and the ancient Eastern world. 
But I don't think that's the instinct of the, of the church at its, at its best. I think the instinct of the church is to recognize that the, the givenness of the verbal, literal sense of the text itself is participating in God's own triune self-disclosure. So I, I, I would want to resist the instinct to make that kind of theological interpretation one or two steps removed from the actual engagement of the biblical text itself in its given literary form. And what are the dangers that come with it, as the Protestant reformers and others have right. emphasized? And yet there is a sense in which we have to look for a more right. than we are able to simply in a reductionist way determine. Right. And I, I talk about this in some of the final chapters in the book. You know, the philosophy of language is one of the more fascinating um, intellectual endeavors of the last hundred years. And uh, books by George Steiner, Real Presences, uh, Rowan Williams has an excellent collection of lectures entitled The Edge of Words that sort of leans into the ways in which l- ordinary language participates in realities that even go beyond all that we understand. And so I make a kind of a fortiori argument that if if we talk about normal language, our normal syntactical patterns meaning more how much more so when we're talking about the language of God given in Holy Scripture? So I think that's where we see Irenaeus is a great example of this, you know, someone who recognizes that the biblical texts participate in realities that go beyond uh, an original moment. Well, it's great having this conversation with you. It's wonderful to have you back from St. Andrews. What's kind of next for you as uh, theologically and in terms of your scholarship in particular? Oh, I'm wrestling with that. I mean, I should get your advice. I, I have a few contracts that I have to fulfill. One of them is a commentary, a Brazos Theological Commentary on the Minor Prophets. I think you're doing one on James, right? I do one on James for that same series. So, so when you start, I'll start. We'll that, <laughs> you're uh, making me feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I, um, so I have, I have a commentary on the Minor Prophets that I'm doing for Brazos. A friend of mine and I are co-authoring a book on theological, uh, theological introduction to the Old Testament. So I have a few contracts that I, that I have to fulfill, but I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to try to write for a larger audience at some point. I don't know what that will look like. I have some ideas. Um, I'd like to write a little collection of essays, not a commentary on the Psalms, but a collection of essays on the Psalms, something like we saw with C.S. Lewis's Reflection on yeah. the Psalms. It won't, couldn't be of that level, but that, that kind of yeah. writing I'd like to do. I'd also like to do a book at some point on a theology of Bible translation. Ah, um, And this is... This is one that I will have to percolate a little bit more, but the seeds of that project are already in Chapter 4 of the book that we're talking about today. Um, How do we wrestle with the fact that very early in the life of the church, even in the compositional history of the New Testament itself, a translation is functioning as the authoritative norm for Christian theological sense-making and discourse? The Septuagint. That's an important question. Now, we can raise the question about which which text Hebrew Septuagint is deemed canonical, but the very basic matter is a translation is doing a lot of heavy lifting theologically for the New Testament authors and the early church. What do we do with that? Um, and why do I hear my translation read on Sunday morning at church and we say, this is the word of the Lord? And then we respond with thanks be to God. What's, what theological categories do we need to have to understand the ways in which our translations function canonically? I, I'd like to think about that a little bit more at some point. I would encourage you to pursue that book on the Psalter because the first thing I ever heard by you after you came to Beeson was a course you offered on the Psalms. Oh. And I listened to every one of them as I did my morning walks, and it was wonderful because you were engaging the students, and Jesus Christ was there in the Psalms uh, in an appropriate kind of way. 
it seemed to me it was a theological reading of the Psalms, but with spiritual formation uh, as the underlying theme going through it. And we need more of that, not less. Yeah, well, thank you. Those lectures didn't put you to sleep while you were walking? No, 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 they kept me awake (laughs) (laughs) and made me appreciate you as part of the giftedness that you are to us, a wonderful teacher, a wonderful theologian. Uh, Well, we're delighted to have you back. Thanks for taking time for this conversation. The book is called Reading Scripture Canonically. Mark S. Genelette is the author. (laughs) It's from Baker Academic. It's a very accessible, but I think an important book for us today. So I encourage everybody to go and read it. Reading Scripture Canonically, Mark Genelette. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Dr. George. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.